You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. It has been nearly two months since the President declared a national health emergency. 18 states have reopened or partially reopened. Another six have plans to reopen in the near future. This while 26 states have extended their orders to remain closed or have no reopening dates set. Even though nationwide, deaths from the coronavirus have not significantly lessened, the trend toward reopening is clear. How are courts responding? I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Our focus continues to be on how courts are coping with the coronavirus crisis. Today we have a new guest, Chris Gaddis, Court Administrator for the Pierce County Superior Court in Tacoma, Washington. Welcome, Chris. Also joining us today is Zanelle Brown, Court Administrator in Detroit, Michigan. Mike Rowdy, Court Executive Officer in San Diego, California. Mark Weinberg, Court Administrator in Daytona Beach, Florida. Angie Van Skoik. Court Administrator for the Municipal Court in Breckenridge, Colorado, Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator in Lane County, Oregon, and Rick Pierce with the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining today's podcast. We start today with a listener question. Jackie Waters, eCourt Program Director for the New Hampshire Administrative Office of the Courts, asked about court plans to reopen. Here to ask that question is Jackie Waters. Well, thank you. I was wondering how the panelists are working on their reopen plans, both anything general with the court operations, but specifically on ending jury trial suspensions. Liz, what are the plans to reopen in Lane County? In Oregon, we may get to a phase one reopening sometime in May. In fact, the governor has already authorized some limited doctor's offices reopenings during the month of May. But the governor hasn't yet announced a date for that full phase one reopening, and it would be pretty limited and include a lot of personal services with social distancing. The chief justice's orders for our restricted operations with the courts have flowed out of those governor's orders for closure. And so we would likely see an amended chief justice order sometime at the end of May or possibly for June. But that hasn't stopped us from planning for reopening. When we restricted our court operations down to only the essential in-custody and criminal proceedings and protective orders, we did kind of a chart where we flowed through each docket type and what the strategy for the restricted operations would be, whether that case and docket type would be postponed, held remotely, held in person with social distancing, and so on and so forth. So as we open up, our plan is, and we've already kind of started this, is going through that chart of every docket and every proceeding type, and in priority order, looking at what we could do, and then implementing a strategy, sort of the next phase on that chart, for either holding, adding proceedings remotely, or finding a way to add proceedings in person with social distancing in our courthouse. We expect our first criminal jury trial to be sometime in early June. 
So we're listening carefully to the experiences in other courts and looking at how to apply social distancing in our building specifically. Rick, what about Pennsylvania? This is a great question, one that we've been contemplating since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, jury trials remain in state of suspension by order of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. As I said, we've had numerous discussions among the court administrators and officials from the AOC regarding the conduct of jury trials all the way from qualification, voir dire, trial, and deliberation. You can imagine Pennsylvania may be a microcosm of other places in the country as well where we have quite a few actually rural jurisdictions where they do not have certain facilities in their courthouse. They may have no jury assembly room. They may just have one large courtroom that they conduct jury trials in and then where they do actual all voir dire and that actually serves as a jury assembly room too. So these are, as Liz was indicating, what they have to dis discuss and debate in Eugene. We have similar discussions in Pennsylvania. Mike, what are your court's plans? Well, Peter, much like the earlier comment, our governor still has not opened the state except for some beaches and parks. However, we were told uh, this morning that he has some announcements coming out over the next few days about trying, I think, to partially reopen the state. At the court level, we are continuing to institute video technologies and online access technologies like email and email boxes and slowly continue to add to the list of expanded emergency services. Beyond that, we've adopted in each of our areas planning for a 10-day rollout. So if we can focus in on an, uh, an opening date, we back that down 10 days to begin looking at how we start to return employees, uh, ramp up the uh, processing of documents that have been suspended by virtue of the uh, Judicial Council's emergency closure order, Chief Justice's closure order, and with an eye towards actually having what we call a soft opening where we get to the expanded services by that actual opening date. With respect to jury trial suspensions, they are suspended by order of the chief until mid-June at this point. But beyond that, we've just started to talk and are looking at what other courts here in California and frankly across the country may be doing to continue enforcing the social distancing aspects of, of our reopening versus how are we going to conduct a jury trial. We do have jury lounges for hundreds of hundreds of jurors, but clearly we're not going to be able to use that those facilities. So that's a, a work in progress for us. Chris, how about in Tacoma? Yeah, Pete, thanks for uh, having me on today. Not a lot different than what everybody else has been trying to figure out. One of the things that we found out early, not too early, unfortunately, was that our regular 300 juror assembly room is with COVID spacing is comes down to about 24. So we're currently working with our facility staff, our finance department to find an offsite location that we can hopefully house for a temporary basis, our jury orientation and voir dire, maybe even some jury trials offsite, and then uh, figuring out if it needs to be a permanent space. You know, I think one of the problems that we run into is the uncertainties of all this. What is it going to look like a year from now, two years from now? Is social distancing going to continue to be a thing? And if it is, how do you manage that on a permanent basis? We're hoping that there are monies that come along with this to, to pay for some of these upgrades, but we don't know that that's going to be a reality uh, once we start looking at what the actual costs are going to be. So right now we're just working with all of our stakeholders to try and figure out 
what that off-site jury orientation voir dire is really going to look like. Now, some of you have already mentioned different estimated dates when jury trials could restart in your court. I've heard estimates as early as mid-June and as far off as next year. Sunel, have you come up with an estimated date for trials to restart in your court? Our estimated start date is August 17th. And again, I can't say that that's etched in stone. We're going to definitely wait and see as we get closer to that date, do we need to modify it? And I concur with what others were saying earlier. We still have to work out the logistics. Chris, does your court have an estimated start date? We do. The Washington State Supreme Court suspended all jury trials, civil and criminal, through at least July 6th. And that that happened last week. And based on the governor's new stay home, stay healthy order, Barring some drastic change, we expect that date to be accurate. We did have to suspend some trials right at the early onset of this pandemic, and those trials will actually be resumed in the end of May and early June as an essential function as long as we can do the spacing. So any new jury trials will not start until after July 6th. Does your court have to develop special procedures for trials that have been suspended for so many months? I can imagine the juror memories will have certainly faded. Yeah, and that's why I think they've wanted to get them started as soon as possible. That's up to the judge and the attorneys that are involved in those cases. We'll see how it plays out. It could get interesting. Rick, do the Pennsylvania courts have an estimated start date? Uh, We do not, Pete. Uh, As right now, the Supreme Court's not set a date certain other than to say that they're suspended through the end of May, and they will be assessing this routinely is determine when we can actually give discretionary authority to the president judges of each judicial district of when they can proceed with resuming jury trials. The governor announced his plan for reopening the Commonwealth last week, and like other states, it's going to be done in phases and most likely by geographic regions with the rural areas of the northwest and north central region of the Commonwealth to open some businesses at the end of this week. And the reason why I say this is it does dovetail directly with the courts. So gatherings of more than 25 people is prohibited, even though the the governor acknowledged in a press briefing, uh, the courts will make their own decisions regarding the court's business. It's possible you'll see jury trials resume this year in regions of Pennsylvania, while others significantly impacted may be longer. I just wanted to add, too, that we got invited by our state court administrator's office to participate in piloting virtual juries. So hopefully that'll occur before August and we'll get to see what that looks like. And maybe that's part of what we can integrate in our new plan. Zanel, do you have anything developed as to what virtual jury trials would look like? I have not a clue, but I'm (laughs) very interested in finding out. I dare say that this will be something that we will all be very interested in. I will definitely share it once, once I have some more information. Do any of you have plans for conducting health checks of employees, jurors, and the public were for letting them enter the courthouse again? And would those health checks involve taking folks' temperatures? Sunel, how about in your court? So currently for employees, we're doing a health screening. They can do that online before they report to work. Once they get to the work site, at three of the court locations, there's a deputy there to take the temperature. And the final location, which is not a county court-owned building, they will be having a medical person coming in to do the temperature taking. And at each of these buildings, it includes the employees as well as um, the public when they come in. Chris? 
currently we don't have any plans for checking employees. You know, we advise them repeatedly about the non-pharmaceutical interventions that if you're not if you're not well, stay home. For those that we are compelling into the courthouse, our presiding judge has asked our administration to look into that and we've contacted our risk management department with the county and seen what what a screening versus a testing process would look like and how we move forward especially when we're looking at bringing in jurors. I don't know what your states and counties do, but we're still at the $10 a day. And the fact that we're bringing somebody in at $10 a day, possibly subjecting them to exposure, uh, we want to provide them the safest environment that we can. So that's one thing that we're looking at providing. Our Western State Hospital, where we held our involuntary treatment court, has since the beginning of this outbreak tested or screened all the people that come on their campus. So that's a, a temporal scan and I believe three questions about you know, do you have a cough, have you been traveling at some point. And so those are currently what we're, we do. Angie, how about at Breckenridge? Well, currently HR has mandated that all employees need to be checked prior to entering town hall. So they're trying to figure out the best way to do that in terms of taking temperatures and such. Uh, they had thought about having it be that people would self-report their temperatures, but it was determined based on how the governor had his mandates that it has to be the workplace that's taking the temperatures. Uh, so we will be doing that. And we haven't decided yet for defendants and such for coming into the courthouse how we're going to handle that. Um, right now we're kind of thinking maybe just asking questions of them if they've you know been sick or been in contact with anybody that has been sick within the past two weeks but we're kind of waiting to see how things shake out through the month of may before we determine what we're going to do with defendants are there plans to dispense face masks hand sanitizer and gloves to employees mark yes we do have plans to make all of those items available to employees as well as to visitors of the courthouse. Um, we're, we're lucky in that we've had several uh, local vendors come up with ways to uh, change their production lines to start producing face masks and hand sanitizer and the like. So we, we've been procuring those items since the pandemic began and do have plans to make them available but not require their use. Chris? We have masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, and wipes for all employees and Court participants who come in to the courthouse have the option to request a mask if they're in a court proceeding. If they're a witness testifying and they want to use gloves to handle some documents or evidence, uh, we have that on hand as well. Uh, but currently no plans to force use of said gloves and masks. Liz? We've already distributed um, masks, sanitizer, and gloves to employees. Uh, we've been open to the public since this started for filings and receiving money and all of that. So we've been very diligent about making sure that the employees who are working here have all the safety equipment that's available to them that we could come up with. And our state court administration office, emergency services division has been helping us with supplies of all of those things. And just in the last week, we've started to contemplate jury trials, obviously, and thinking about how we might provide at least face masks on a voluntary basis to those folks who we are compelling to come into the courthouse once that gets started. Now, Zanelle said that her court was conducting 
deep cleaning of some of the court buildings. Do others of you have plans to deep clean your courthouse? Angie, how about the town hall in Breckenridge? Uh, well, right after the uh, town hall closed, because we have court and uh, council chambers, and one of the first things they did was to have our cleaning crew come in and sanitize everything that they could possibly do. Uh, one of the things that we'll plan on doing, typically it ends up that they have council meetings the night before I have court. Uh, so we're trying to figure out the best way to get that, to get chambers kind of clean. So we're looking into some type of aerosol disinfectant that we can spray on the seats and stuff if they decide to open uh, council meetings to the public. Uh, currently, they're just doing everything remotely, uh, which makes it a lot easier to, to clean the chambers area. Mark? Yes. Um, the county facilities folks in all four of the counties of our jurisdiction have taken this opportunity to uh, do some deep cleaning of the courthouses. And, you know, I, I, on a related note, I have to give them a lot of credit in that they are taking advantage of this reduction in service time to do some things that in the courthouse that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to do or would have to have done on nights or weekends. So they've done a really good job in terms of painting offices that needed to be painted, recarpeting areas, paving parking lots and, and doing those sorts of things that uh, they've been waiting to do. Mike? We have had two instances where we've had someone who's alerted us to a possible exposure and we've gone in and they were in courtroom settings to specifically deep clean those courtrooms. Beyond that, we've modified all of our contracts so that we are more frequently touching the high touch areas, if you will, to make sure that they're clean, such as uh, the elevator buttons, door handles, and some of those things. Our buildings have essentially been closed to the public since uh, March 17th, and so we've had very limited public presence only for emergency matters. Much of what we've been doing is through uh, video or remote. So by focusing in on those high-touch areas, as well as more aggressively cleaning the actual courtrooms where we do have a judge, a clerk, and a reporter doing the, the video hearings, we think we're in good shape at this point. Have any of you discussed physical changes to the buildings, such as adding plexiglass barriers or social distancing railings to direct foot traffic flow? Liz? Yes, as a matter of fact, our county owns the building, and they reached out to us to help with areas such as transaction windows that don't have plexiglass. Most of our transaction windows already have glass, facing the public, but those that the remainder that don't, the counties reached out to help us with that. We have already put tape lines on the floor for social distancing in case anybody is standing in a line for information or the um, transaction windows. But since all of our proceedings are currently remote, we haven't yet had to consider social distancing in our courtrooms. So we're starting to think about that. And we're also starting to consider if when we open back up a little bit more, we have more traffic in the building, will we need to direct traffic in a certain flow through the building so that the entry and exit ways don't become too crowded? So that's sort of next on the list. Mark? I kind of have to echo what Liz has already mentioned and that mo most of our transactional uh, areas already have windows in them. We too have taken to doing the, uh, the, the tape on the floor to keep the distancing. Uh, our next step will be 
to create some separations, particularly in courtrooms and marking off seating areas for people to, to keep the distancing. Angie? Uh, so we did order uh, to have our public works and facilities guys put in plexiglass at the front window and they did not have it before this. Um, and then the uh, court office space um, has had plexiglass. Uh, like Liz and Mark said, we're going to have the, the tape on the floor to mark the six feet from everywhere. And I'm thinking that we'll probably have it be one way directional for going down one set of stairs to get down to the chambers and then having them come back up the other way because the stairwells are pretty much only wide enough for one person to be going one direction and that way kind of keep the, the flow going. I think that first court date in June will give us a lot of information in terms of what's going to work or not because we're going to have to section off the seating areas and chambers and trying to figure out how that's going to work to be able to get people in there and not have them be too close to one another. Zanel? So we're doing the research for the plexiglass, plexiglass. Uh, we have it at a lot of the transactional windows. What we're looking for possibly is a divider from the judge and the courtroom clerk there, also from the courtroom clerk to the public and the attorneys who are coming in. Definitely looking at some taping, and we will have to reconfigure our waiting areas and section off some seating there. So. We're going to do the physical things as well as stagger hearing times, and hopefully it all comes together. Now, last week, a couple of you mentioned the growing specter of a budget crisis. What discussions have you had about dealing with budget issues on top of reopening? Rick? Well, Pete, there have been continued, there have been, have been and continue to be conversations regarding the budget to impact that the coronavirus the pandemic has caused. Uh, the current fiscal year near an end, the governor and the General Assembly decide soon whether or not a stopgap budget will be needed to implement it, as well as the modifications to the governor's budget proposal for fiscal year 2021, which was in the discussion phase in both chambers when the pandemic forced the closure of all the uh, state facilities. Now, the legislature has had continued discussions, of course. Uh, what will be the impact upon the courts across the Commonwealth is unknown. And frankly, that'd be pure speculation on my part, so I'll, I'll hold off. But what we do know, like many states, is the judiciary's budget is less than 1% of the entire budget for the Commonwealth. Liz? I had to have to echo a lot of what Rick just said. Oregon's circuit courts are state-funded, and the current fiscal cycle ends June 30th of 2021. The Oregon legislature has asked the judicial branch to do a planning exercise for reduction so that we can describe to them how a reduction would impact the judicial branch. And to do that, the Chief Justice has convened a committee, including the state court administrator, some few presiding judges, and trial court administrators to discuss what that exercise or plan would look like. Those discussions started last Friday, so it's all very new. And our initial goal, obviously, is to work with the legislature to describe how Oregon's courts are an essential function both in the economic recovery, but also in societal recovery, as Oregonians need a safe place to resolve disputes. There's already stories coming out about how the court delays are impacting families and citizens on a daily basis. And the Chief Justice has asked us to describe those impacts on the public so that we can bring that information back to the legislature. And like Rick said, it's all speculation right now. Obviously, we've been done to ask to do an exercise but the amount of any kind of cut, we don't know what it will be yet. 
Mike? Well, we had a briefing on this just last Friday with presiding judges and court administrators via the Judicial Council. The best indication we have is that next week they'll announce a May revision to the budget, which all prior items are off the table, obviously. What's unknown at this point is whether that will be essentially a rollover budget or whether there will be cuts in that May revise. Basically, the legislature has a constitutional mandate to adopt a budget by the end of June. They intend to meet that with a placeholder budget and then to begin the revision process in the August-September timeframe with something to follow thereafter. We've been told to expect cuts. We have no idea how big those cuts are going to be. If you have followed California, you know that the state is spending an awful lot of money, as much as they need feel they need to spend to address the coronavirus issues. That will translate to reductions across all state agencies and courts, I'm sure. So we've instituted, a, you know, started to freeze hiring, freeze expenditures, begin looking at ways we can reduce the workforce because that will probably be a part of our response. But no hard targets, but we know that cuts are coming. Chris? Well, we won't know probably until mid-June on the impact that this first wave of, of stay-home orders have, have had, both at the state level and the county level. But our executive has asked us to conduct an exercise as well, looking at both a 2 and a 5% cut for both 2020 and 2021. The thing that we're really struggling with right now, though, is if we have to remove our jury administration to an off-site location, that would actually add staff, add facilities. So <laughs> at the same time, we're trying to cut on one side, we are adding potentially on the other. So it's it, that one's really thrown us for a loop, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Now, some employees may continue to be afraid to come to work even after the courthouse reopens. Will you allow employees to continue to telework after the court reopens? Mark? Well, as I mentioned on a previous episode, we do allow employees to telework and had done so even before the pandemic began. I think what we'll do is address this on a person-by-person, case-by-case basis. What are the employees' duties? What may be their personal situation involving their health condition? But the fact of the matter is that some employees are going to have to be physically present in the courthouse when the court re- reopens. Zanel? Mark is right. Some employees actually do have to appear physically to work. We have found in some instances where we didn't have telework that it is working well. We're sort of making sure that we keep an eye on that to make sure that everything that's involved in the work gets done. So right now we still have people who are teleworking. They may be required to come in like one day a week to make whatever changes in office that they need to make. But if they're doing fine remotely, we're continuing that for the time being. Mike? I think telework will be an ongoing part of the workplace going forward. We do not have the ability to distance employees in our current work setups. And frankly, we are finding uh, they can be just as productive teleworking as they can in coming to the office. Our challenge will be in those areas, like some of the public service areas or where we have older technology that doesn't support telework, how we can try to integrate more online transaction processing into the business. But it, without a doubt, telework will become a permanent feature of the court in the, for the near term 
Otherwise, we can't comply with the public health directives on social distancing and minimizing exposures in the workplace. Angie, you said that you and your judge face a number of challenges about restarting your calendars. Can you elaborate on some of the challenges that you and your judge face? Is conducting virtual hearings an option? Um, unfortunately, virtual court hearings aren't an option because the judge wants people to be there in person. So we've had to figure out the best way. And the other issue, too, is the majority of the people that own are the ones that actually show up are transient. And they currently don't have uh, the ability to get in touch with us in any way because they would use the public library to email and such like that. And the libraries have been closed and are still closed right now in the county. Uh, so that has been kind of difficult. The other challenge that we've been having is just the best way to contact people. The majority of those defendants that we have do not live anywhere near us. Um, they're all in other states. And so we're really trying to push the plea by mail process for them to be doing more of, you know, like a, a mail email version of court instead of being here in person because it would require them to travel. And a lot of them don't want to do that. So that's just getting in touch with people has been a challenge since they don't give the correct information when they get their citations. So I tried to send out letters to everybody that had court dates. And I would say about one third of the letters I sent came back undeliverable. I try to call them and the numbers are incorrect. So it's just kind of, uh, you know, either they're going to show up or they, I hope they contact me to, to find out when their court dates are supposed to be, or they're panicking because they realize they missed something, even though they didn't since we rescheduled them. How does your court plan to address the backlog of cases? Are you considering even more aggressive dispute resolution techniques, such as online dispute resolution? Rick? Well, Pete, I think that is an option on the table here. Uh, for use in Pennsylvania, it's certainly a, a good option. And I applaud uh, the Texas courts for looking into the expansion of its use of ODR. I would say no idea or approach is off at the table at this point. And I think this is an opportunity for all the courts as well as those in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to look. One option that I would say is the one resource that we always say we don't have enough of is time. And yet when we are doing proceedings remotely, at least what we have found in the last six to eight weeks, and it's perhaps because we're mostly focusing on mission critical functions, but this has been one resource that we have seen that we have a little bit more available than we did in the past. And I think when you're looking at uh, remote proceedings, these proceedings, particularly if all the other means of remote access to, whether it's to court documents, as well as to, to court staff, is readily available. This is something that do not fall into the constraints of a of banker hours, as we jokingly would say, something like a, whenever the courthouse hours are, eight to four, nine to five. These are things that uh, there is an option here for courts to, in order to reduce the backlog of perhaps expanding its time and its access. Whether it is an option we'll take advantage of, I don't know, but it is certainly something we are looking at. Uh, so I hope we really take a look at a comprehensive look at all of our processes and just come to the realization that some of them we can really improve upon with technology like uh, remote hearings. And we can reduce the necessity for physical space, uh, which is an issue, especially in social distancing, and it's, which in the end may also have another positive uh, benefit for our courts, and that's to make them not only more efficient, but perhaps more secure. Mike? 
Well, as I indicated a bit earlier in the broadcast, uh, we've begun working on reopening plans, which also talk about steps that we can take to address backlogs. We've had employees in working behind the scenes to essentially eliminate pre-existing backlogs, which we had at the time of the closure. So basically to clear the decks so that we can start to work on these new cases as they come forward. We have not considered ODR or other online dispute resolution techniques. At this point, our judges are beginning to assess their caseloads and inventories, and we're working with online scheduling tools so that we can start to recalendar matters. We're of the belief that many cases may have taken care of themselves during this period and may be in different postures than they were six weeks ago. So we want to provide opportunities for the parties to uh, self-schedule and to start looking you know, looking at court hearings and, and making appointments with judges in the coming weeks so that we can assess the status and then move forward from there. Zanel? So we have like four things at play. First, we have our state court administrator's office who definitely is pushing ODR and ADR period. And they're even allowing for there to be training for mediators to now be online. So that's something totally new. We have our community dispute resolution centers that piloted ODR, I think, like in August of last year. So those resources are available. We have a Michigan Mediation Tribunal Association, which has been in existence since 1979. And most of the mediation they do is with civil cases, and they're offering that as an option now while people are still waiting for their cases to get to the judges. And then finally, we're looking at our court resources. We have in-house mediators, especially on our domestic relations side, and we believe that moving a lot of the disputes there can help um, resolve those a lot more timely as well. So with all of these various facets, I think ODR will become more popular and prevalent in um, Detroit than it is currently. Finally, our wrap-up question. What has been the biggest issue that you've had to deal with this week about managing the crisis? Zanel? My biggest issue has been staffing. So we did bring some staff back. So making sure that they knew that it was a very very measured approach that we were taking with the staggered hours, the social distancing, the conversations we've had to have with the union in the process of that, advising everyone of the screening, the personal protective gear. And then also it was just a big shift because we had paid furlough. So we were ending that and then telling some people, yes, you do have to actually come into the office. So handling all those issues was the biggest challenge. Rick? Well, Pete, I think there are three challenges. Uh, like last week, I would say I think the reopening of the courts is is the first challenge. And as, as I stated earlier, the courts are not necessarily open to the general public as much right now, but the courts are open as of today uh, for all functions of the court's business. But I think the ensuring the public safety and a means that we haven't had to be concerned with in the past is definitely an issue. Uh, stated by others on this podcast, we, we must ask ourselves specific questions. We really have to become granular on how do we protect our employees and the public while being as accessible as we have been in the past. In Pennsylvania, we have individual criminal county criminal justice advisory boards, and we have local court security committees, and these are ideal forums for all the parties, uh, the courts, 
the partners of the courts and the court stakeholders on the executive side of the aisle to ask these questions and hopefully come up with these innovative solutions that work for each judicial district. Uh, backlog is a problem, but I'm hopeful, like others on the podcast, that we continue to take a hard look at the solutions that many of us are applying now. Sufficient funding for our courts is the third item. It was an issue in the past. It's an issue now, and most likely will continue to be a concern in the future. But right now, Pennsylvania courts must concern themselves with issues that they can have a positive impact, uh, when that's the safety and security of the public while providing access to everybody. And I think the pandemic's really created an opportunity for us to be innovative. Our hand has been forced, so to speak. You know, so hopefully we can play this hand because I think we have an opportunity to take the courts forward, but being ever mindful of having a progressive vision along with granular planning. Angie? Well, like Rick said, just how do you keep employees and defendants safe? So I'm still you know, working on that plan. But then also just with, like we talked about the budget cuts, uh, I've been tasked with trying to find other places to cut budget. And at this point, I mean, we were operating on pretty minimal anyway, so I don't know what else I can cut. Um, so, you know, just kind of working through all of that and coming up with those plans to how best to reopen and have everybody there and have access to us. Chris? We were waiting on the, the governor's extension of the stay home, stay healthy. I, I knew that we had work for people through May 4th, which was the original end date. And we were really hanging our hats on that being the time where we'd be able to bring everybody back. But because of that order being extended through the end of May, we are looking at having to lay some people off. Our executive, our county executive had created a standby status. So even if our employees were, were out of the building, not able to work, they would have continued to be paid. That ended on the 24th of April. So there are no options other than unemployment right now for a few of our staff members. Mike? I think uh, vigilance and fatigue would be the two issues that are really starting to, to hit us. Um, fatigue uh, in the community with the restrictions and the inability to, uh, to get out. Fatigue internally with every day seems to be just like the one before. And so how do we continue to keep people's spirits up and continue to try to drive forward and, you know, obviously implement the things that we need to do as we, quote unquote, reopen the courts. Vigilance, uh, again, people get complacent and it's trying to keep people attuned to the issues in the state and public health orders. I think that going forward, you almost have to be a bit of a cheerleader and continue to really, you know, work with people and, and show a positive spirit. Beyond that, I think increasingly over the next couple of weeks as the state's budget picture, as others have said, the budget will play a larger role internally with concerns from our employees about the future of the court and court funding. Liz? Well, as everyone has mentioned, my biggest challenge also this week has been the budget. It's been all the budget all the time and, and from a variety of different perspectives. For instance, a colleague and I serve as the chairs of our peer group statewide. There are 27 trial court administrators in Oregon, and she and I met briefly and just thinking about it, realized that 20 of our colleagues had never been through a budget reduction as state of Oregon management employees. 
So we realized that there was a huge knowledge gap amongst our colleagues in just understanding how these things flow out from the legislature to the chief justice and then down to the trial courts and how best to use their time now, not spinning, but doing proactive things to get ready for a potential budget cut without doing things without actually implementing. So she and I got together with a couple other colleagues and uh, prepared a training and mentoring session. And we conducted that with our colleagues last Thursday. I think it was time really well spent because folks had never had that experience before. This one will be different, but it was, I think, important for us to remember what we'd done and for others to sort of know what the pros and cons of all those different scenarios were. And in addition to that, of course, I was appointed to the Chief Justice's committee that's looking at uh, the budget reduction exercise. So pretty much since our last um, conversation here on the podcast, that's what I've been working on, along with reopening plans. Mark? Most of our efforts this week were focused on uh, taking a look at what it is we've been doing since the pandemic began, taking a look at ways that perhaps we could expand our services without going outside the scope of what the, of the mandates established by the Supreme Court, uh, kind of towards an effort uh, based on the earlier issue related to backlog. Is there anything we can do now to help reduce some of the backlog that we'll inevitably face when uh, we fully reopen? My thanks to Angie, Mike, Liz, Mark, Zanel, Chris, and Rick today for sharing how their courts are coping with the many aspects of the coronavirus crisis. Ready or not, we're having to think about plans to reopen, and it raises dozens of questions. As always, thanks to you court professionals out there listening, and who are working on the front lines of the courts battling the coronavirus. Thanks again for all you do. Join us next Thursday, May 14th, as we continue our conversation with our guests. Remember, if you have a question about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus, email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. We'll try to answer your question on a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer. And on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.